Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. As you know, if you've been with us, we are in the 11th week of a uh, series that we've been doing all summer long called The Answer, where we are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians chapter by chapter. And if you are joining us for the first time, I'm going to do the obligatory catch you up to speed speech for just a second here. If you've been with us, I apologize because you've heard me say this 11 times. So you can just tune out for the next 38 seconds and then tune back in. Uh, But the reason we're studying through the book of 1 Corinthians is because a brief study of that ancient city would uh, reveal that we have a lot in common. San Francisco and ancient Corinth are are quite a bit alike. Uh, We can go back and look at some of the earlier sermons for an exhaustive list of those commonalities, but the Cliff Notes version sounds a little bit like this. Uh, Ancient Corinth was a large metropolitan city, a port city, a transient place where people are constantly coming and going for work, and it was widely recognized within the Roman Empire as a place of great wealth and great influence, influence that spanned far beyond its borders. But in addition to being known for wealth and influence, it was also widely recognized as a bit of a hotbed for hedonism, a very sexually progressive city, a sinfully indulgent city, a city, as I've said every single week, was a place that you could go if you wanted to be whoever you wanted to be, do whatever you wanted to do, indulge in whatever you wanted to indulge in, and not just be tolerated, but to be celebrated for it. But like us, the Apostle Paul felt that a city that dark and that wicked was the perfect place to plant a church because he believed that the light of the gospel shines brightest in the darkest of places. And so he shows up in AD 49, plants this church, the Father's house in Corinth. It was awesome. And uh, hundreds of people begin to give their lives to Jesus and get baptized in water like we saw today, added into the family of God. And this church begins to explode. In fact, it grows so quickly that he feels after a year and a half, he can move on in his mission endeavors, and he entrusts the church to capable hands. But shortly after his departure, he begins to get some frantic letters from these new Christians who are discovering that it's a lot more difficult than they anticipated to live for Christ in their wicked Corinthian culture. A lot of problems have arisen in the church because some of the ways of Corinth are leaking into the community of faith. And so Paul responds to these frantic letters with yet another letter that we now know as the book of 1 Corinthians. And one by one, he begins to address each of these problems. However, with every issue, he responds showing that the gospel of Jesus Christ provides an answer. Hence the title of the series, The Answer. Uh, And since our cities are so similar, every week during this series, we have taken one of the chapters of this book and contextualized that problem to our modern setting and discovered once again how the gospel still provides an answer for the problems that we face in the modern church today. So now that it's the 11th week, we go to the 11th chapter and look at more problems, a couple of them. They had problems on problems on problems, 99 problems, but never mind. Um, So... (laughs) That flew better at the 11 o'clock service. You know the ratchet people are in here when you can drop rap references like that. Jay-Z, I know that one. Anyway, um, so uh, today we're gonna go to the 11th chapter and we're gonna pray. Before I do that, let me uh, offer you a sermon title that I'm very excited about today. And I give you permission to use at any point during the sermon, all right? Uh, I wanna title this chat in the form of an old Pentecostal response if a preacher was saying something exceptionally good from the stage. I wanna call this chat, You better preach. Come on, let's try it out. You better preach. Turn to the person next to you right now, look them in the eyeballs and you tell them, you better preach today. (laughs) For all the Caucasians, I said, you better, not you had better preach. You better preach. I just... 
to be clear. Okay. <laughs> Channel your inner gangster today. All right, let's go for it. Let's pray. Thank you. I will. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Thank you for the word. Thank you for uh, these problems that uh, Paul addressed in the scriptures. And thank you that there is a solution for things that we even face today. I, I pray as we go to communion in just a couple of moments from now, uh, that this sacred sacrament, this, this moment of remembrance would not feel as it's ever felt before, but God, that there would be fresh life, fresh understanding around this, uh, this practice. And God, that we would experience you in a powerful way today before we leave this place. In Jesus' name, and the church said, a mizzle, a missile. All right. <laughs> uh, so chapter 11 is broken up into two major sections. Um, we're not going to spend a ton of time on the first part of chapter 11, uh, because honestly, it isn't really an issue that we face here at the Father's house. However, I do want to spend a couple of moments addressing the problem that Paul speaks to, because while it may not be a problem here right now, it can become a problem in any church setting if you are not careful. Uh, the first 16 verses find the Apostle Paul addressing some gender distinctions within the church, namely as it relates to hairstyles and head coverings. Um, in biblical times, apparently it was uh, customary in their culture for women to keep their hair long, considered appropriate. And if a woman walked into a worship setting like this at a church or was going to worship or pray in public, they were supposed to wear a head covering that was considered culturally acceptable. Vice versa, the men were supposed to keep their hair short. Sorry for all the guys with ponytails in the room today. Uh, and you were never supposed to wear a head covering because that was considered dishonorable. Uh, now, if you want an exhaustive reason for why they thought that, you can go back and read the first part of chapter 11. We're not going to do that today. But obviously, that is not a cultural practice here at the Father's house. As far as I know, there's not people standing at the doors hanging out, handing out head coverings to all the women as you walk into church today. Unless, of course, it is your first time with us. And if that's the case, you can go to our Connect table. And we do offer a free gift in the form of a Father's House hat. But you don't have to put that hat on before you come into worship with the rest of us. And if there's any ladies in here wearing a hat right now, I promise it's not because we made them wear a hat before they walked into church. I need you to know that, all right? Uh, that, that, that might be the practice in some of the other cultures today, but uh, that is not the practice here at the Father's house. And, and, and the reason we don't force people to wear head coverings or keep their hair a certain way excuse me, a certain way, is not because we're trying to be progressive or because we're ignoring the teachings of Scripture. It's because we understand that the first 16 verses here of chapter 11, along with many other scriptures like them in the Bible, were intended to be applied within their appropriate cultural context. Listen very carefully. I've said this every week, but we need to remember when we read this letter that the letter of 1 Corinthians was written to a very specific people at a specific time to address very specific problems that were taking place in their church. As is the case with most of the New Testament letters, they were written to a specific people at a specific time to address very specific issues within their community. Now that said, there are universal truths that we can draw for all time that we find in these letters, things that were intended for the church at large throughout all time in history to apply. But some of the things we see in these letters need to be considered within their appropriate context and not applied universally. And the Apostle Paul makes this very clear, even in chapter 11. He, he says this in the 13th verse. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have a ponytail? Isn't it, and isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other what? Custom than this. So, so Paul clearly states that this is a cultural custom for their time 
And he gives us permission to judge for yourselves, he says. And we have. We have judged for ourselves. Ladies, let your hair out. Cut it short. Grow it long. Guys, Seth's got a ponytail. You can too. Whatever you want, that's fine here, all right? I've been picking on you the last couple of weeks, and I'm sorry, man. It's all love. It's all love, all right? You better preach. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> we've judged for ourselves, and we've determined that it's not necessary. Now, I don't tell you all of this to bore you with some history lesson about the way things were. I tell you this for a very specific purpose. And that purpose is this. When you are developing your theology, when you are studying the scriptures and applying them to your belief system, for the love of God, please consider cultural context. It is incredibly important when you read the Bible that you understand, is this something that God was saying to a specific people at a specific time, or is this something we are supposed to apply for all time to all churches? Many people have brought into broken theologies and denominational persuasions that have made mandates out of ancient cultural customs that were never intended to be universally applied, but were nuanced in nature, speaking to a very specific group of people at a specific time as they fortify their positions around isolated scriptures in the Bible. Let's not do that. Let's be a people that do our homework, and whether it's wearing hats or no hats, or women in ministry, or the distribution of the gifts, the use of the gifts in churches, we're going to talk about next week, or any other hotly debated topic in the body of Christ, let's do our homework and make sure that we understand cultural context as we develop our theologies. Can we agree to do that together, all right? Okay, 17 people are on my team. Awesome, okay. Thank you, capiche, we're good. All right, moving on. Now, on to the main dish uh, that took a little longer than I anticipated. So, after dealing with hats in church, Paul moves on to the greater problem that this church in Corinth is facing uh, as it pertains to the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, let's go back to the text here. He says in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. When you meet, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. Some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own house for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? You want me to praise you? I ain't going to do that. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of Welch's grape juice after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat the bread and drink of the cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Now, as it was for hats in church, so it is for communion. Obviously, as we read this, we discover that there are some cultural differences between the way that we take communion today and the way that communion was remembered back in the, the days of the early church. Uh, for the early church, communion was not a moment during uh, a message or a moment in a corporate gathering where you took a small cup of grape juice and God knows what that wafer is made of and you remember Jesus. In their day, communion was a meal that was shared among a collective group of believers inside somebody's home that was more commonly referred to back then as 
an agape feast. An agape feast was essentially what we now know as the church potluck. Everybody brought a, a, a dish to share with the rest of the folks and everyone put their collective dishes together and then they feasted and they celebrated and they remembered Jesus together. In fact, this is still the practice in many of the Eastern Christian cultures today, which I'm a little jealous of because I feel like we're missing out by not having a church potluck, all right? I don't know about you, but there's something about just eating a bunch of food with Christians after church, like the border of like sin where you're like, did I eat too much? I'm not sure. But then you just take a big long nap on a Sunday afternoon. How many would be down to bring back some agape feasts in church? Okay, next Sunday after church, my house, you bring the red meat and the Reese's, I'll bring the table and, uh, and we'll eat it. It'll be great. But uh, obviously, as Paul begins to explain what's happening with these believers, we know that we need to do a little bit of contextual work here because he says that a lot of these guys showed up and they were trying to get to the front of the line to eat the food first and drink all of the wine and meanwhile getting drunk and a bunch of people weren't getting any food at all. We obviously know that that's not the case in our church today. I don't think anybody is rushing to the front of the line to get one of these. Like, come on, just give me that wafer at the top. I'm gonna, like, no, no, no one's pumped about these things. And unless we've stored these improperly and the grape juice has begun to ferment, I don't think anyone's getting buzzed off of the little shot of grape juice inside. Like, come on, shot, shot, shot. Like, no one's doing that. <laughs> He's making a lot of rap references today. Yes, I know. So, so we're going to have to do a little bit of contextual work to understand, like, what can we draw from this text? What, what does Paul want to say to the modern church who might be taking communion in a slightly different manner? Well, I, I think it's obvious that as Paul brings this correction, it isn't just the method in which he's correcting the Corinthian church for the way they're taking the Lord's Supper. It's also the mindset. It's the way that they're approaching the table. Because apparently, as people were rushing to the front of the buffet line and trying to go to the open bar, they had forgotten the purpose for this meal to begin with. So Paul comes to bring this correction in the 11th chapter, and he says, guys, the reason for communion is remembrance. This is all about taking a moment to remember. He says, I pass on to you what the Lord Jesus himself passed on to me. On the, on the night he was betrayed, he gathered his boys together around that table and he took this piece of, of, of unleavened bread and he said, this bread represents my body that's about to be broken for you. From now on, every time you eat this bread, I want you to remember me. Remember me. And, and then... Later on, he takes the wine and he says, this represents my blood, blood that's about to be spilled for you. And as it's spilled, it will establish a new covenant with you. And from now on, every time you take this cup, I want you to remember me. It's all about remembrance. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that story in the gospels, I'm a bit of a visual person and I picture Jesus sitting at this table with his disciples and just this incredibly intimate and emotional moment between the Messiah and these men that have walked with him for the last three years. They've seen him do miracles. They've slept in the same room. They've, they've been encouraged and loved by God himself among them. And now he's staring these men he loves in the eyes and he's saying, guys, I don't want you to forget about me. 
Remember, when I'm gone, all that you've seen, all that you've heard, just, just, just remember. But what might simply look like a memorial moment at a dinner table was actually an incredibly controversial statement because when Jesus tells these men to remember him, he is simultaneously redefining a 1,500-year-old meal of remembrance that these guys had known. Don't forget, this was not any normal dinner. This was Passover, according to the scriptures. A 1,500-year-old celebration where the Jewish people would gather once a year, they would eat some traditional food, and they would celebrate as they remembered the fact that God delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh all the way back in Egypt. This was essentially their Independence Day. It was their 4th of July. But, but unlike our 4th of July barbecues, every single element in the meal was significant and used for the purpose of remembrance. If you've ever been a part of a Seder dinner, you, you, you've witnessed this. Someone would stop the meal and take the bitter herbs and they would hold them up and they'd say, these bitter herbs represent the bitterness that we faced in slavery. But as a people, God delivered us from that bitterness and he gave us joy. They would take the piece of unleavened bread and they would say, this represents the expediency of our deliverance. God delivered us overnight before the bread even had time to rise. And we're reminded of the fact that in a moment, God can do something that will change our lives forever. They would take the, the lamb shank and they would say, this lamb is a reminder of the lamb that gave its life so that the blood could be painted across the doorposts of of the Israelites' homes in Goshen and the angel of death would pass over the Israelites and take out the firstborn of the Egyptians. Our enemy was slain because of the lamb. Every single element, a symbol, a moment to remember what God had done. It would essentially be like sitting down for a 4th of July meal and someone stopping before you ate and saying, this hot dog, <laughs> it represents the cannons that were fired for you and your independence. That mound of potato salad represents the mountains on which your ancestors died for your freedom. And as you pour that Bud Light into your beer bong, that Bud Light represents the fact that our enemies have been canceled once and for all, <laughs> never to prosper again. No, too soon? Okay. <laughs> Every element of the Jewish meal of Passover, uh, a moment to stop and think to recall, to remember what God had done. But now Jesus sits in this circle with his disciples and he says, guys, this meal is about to be redefined. No longer do I want you to remember what God did 1,500 years ago for a people that you are not in relationship with, but from now on, I want you to remember what I'm about to do in your midst. I want you to look to the cross that you're gonna see a couple days from now and recognize that there is a new covenant being established for you. Don't look to Egypt, I want you to look at me. In the same way that that blood represented an old covenant, now it's gonna represent a new covenant that will be written in my blood. My blood will stain the doorposts called a cross and it will establish forgiveness and wholeness between you and God once and for all. That lamb was only a type and a picture of a greater one to come. And you are staring at the greater one right now. I am the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I'm the lamb of Isaiah 53 that would go silently to the slaughter. That would be pierced for your transgressions, wounded for your iniquities, chastised for your peace. So that you could be made whole. 
That's who I am. You are staring at the very fulfillment of this meal that you've been eating for 1,500 years. So from now on, I don't want you to remember what God did back then. I want you to remember me. And this was the problem. The the Corinthians in the first century had failed to remember. They had come to this ancient meal very casually, religiously, out of routine, ritual, indulgence, as their culture around them persuaded them to do so, but not truly remembering. And so Paul comes to recalibrate their hearts. Say, guys, let's, let's, let's remember what this meal is all about. It's not just some routine that we go through. No, it represents the very power of the cross of Jesus. And I can't help but wonder if Paul were to write a letter to the American church today, if he wouldn't issue the same reminder to us. To not treat this as a ritual or a routine just something we do because we're Christians, but to bring it back to the centrality of of its intent, to truly remember the power of the cross. In fact, I can't help but wonder if Paul wasn't sitting among us today, if he wouldn't look each and every single one of us in the eyes and say, you need to personally remember what Jesus has done for you. Because here's what I've experienced, and you've probably experienced the same. This life on a broken planet with all the pain and hurt that it provides, it can make it very easy to forget what Jesus has done for us. I know there's probably people sitting in the room right now and you're suffering in your mind. Fear, anxiety, worry, things that keep you up at night, vexed at the 2 a.m. hour, Maybe a mental illness, things we try to medicate and distract and make go away, but it seems like no matter how hard we try, we can't focus, and there's just always that stuff going on in our heads. But when fear and anxiety and worry cause you to forget, you need to remember that your peace of mind has already been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Maybe you're sick in your body here today, a diagnosis, an incurable disease, a something that the doctors can't quite figure out. Maybe there is even a a lifespan attached to it. Or maybe you've prayed for God to heal and he doesn't seem to have answered that prayer for you yet. Or or let's just be real, we've witnessed even one of our own in the last few weeks pass into eternity despite all the faith in the world that we prayed with. Maybe an unanswered prayer fractures our faith for healing. But when unanswered prayers and diagnosis causes us to forget, we need to remember that it was his wounds that paid for our healing once and for all. I know there's people in here today that are dealing with crippling shame. I was talking to a guy last week who said, man, sometimes I don't even feel like I can walk in the door of a church because I just feel like God's staring at me, ashamed of what I've done. Living with regret from your past and that that ball and chain of what you used to do. And, And it feels like no matter how many times you've apologized to God and asked for forgiveness, you just... You can't seem to shake that lingering sense of guilt. But when shame and guilt cause you to forget, come on, you need to remember that all of your shame 
was cast upon the one who stood on that cross and died for your sins so that you would never have to deal with the pain of shame again. Come on, he knew you before you were born. Every day of your life was written in his book. He knew you were gonna fail before you failed. And yet he still went to the cross. He still shed his blood, knowing what you do because a covenant was being established where your failures no longer mandated your life, but his sufficient sacrifice paid the price for you to be made white as snow. You need to remember, for everything this world does to us to cause us to forget, this meal serves as a reminder a moment to remember the power of what Jesus has done. But according to Paul, that reminder isn't just for you. It is personal, but it isn't just for you. There is yet another intended audience that, that this message of remembrance is being shared with. Look at what he says in now the 26th verse. He says, for every time you eat this bread, and every time you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. You are announcing the power, the sufficiency of the cross. That word announce in the Greek, it literally, and you're going to laugh, it's cotton jello. <laughs> so jello flavored like cotton, cotton jello. But, but check out the definition of this word. It literally means to declare publicly, to make known, and to what? Oh, come on, to what? You better preach. To what? To preach. Paul is saying this is more than just a meal. This is a message. It is a declaration out loud, publicly, to the fact that the cross of Jesus is all sufficient it paid the price. It has the power to accomplish what Jesus declared it would accomplish. You may not consider yourself a preacher today. Maybe the idea of standing on a stage with voice amplified is terrifying to you. But Paul says you're more than a preacher than you might realize today. Because every time you take this bread and every time you drink this cup, you are making an announcement about the power of the cross until such a time that Jesus returns. But the last time I checked, you can't preach without people. You can't make it. Thank you, Justin. Come on. You cannot announce without an audience. All right. Come on. We're getting drummed up here a little bit right now. So who then is the intended audience for this sermon that you're preaching? <laughs> it was at this point in my sermon preparation that I just about got out of my chair in my office and ran Pentecostal circles around my office chair, blew a shofar from the top of Mount Davidson and screamed so loud that my neighbors heard me. All right. Because as I started studying this, here's what I discovered, that theologians universally suggest that when Paul makes this statement about announcing, he is telling us that the intended audience for this announcement is the devil himself. <laughs> oh. Get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. Here we go. Literally. When you take the bread and drink the cup, you are preaching to the enemy. As he says, Paul, later in the book of Colossians, you are declaring that the enemy has already been defeated by the victory of the cross, that every power in hell has been disarmed and that the debt of sin has once and for all been paid for. 
put it simply, when you take this cup and when you eat this bread, you are doing the very thing that this sermon series suggests. You are declaring to your enemy that you have the answer to every problem. The answer to your sin, the answer to your failure, the answer to your sickness, the answer to the brokenness of this planet. You have the answer and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the one who left heaven to dwell among men. The one who lived a perfect life that you could never live. Died a death that every single one of us deserved and resurrected on the third day so that you would not have to go down to the grave in defeat, but you could stand in victory over your enemy, declaring the name that is above every other name, that at the mention of the name of Jesus, come on, everyone above the earth, on the earth, below the earth would bow down and declare, he is Lord. When you eat the bread, you drink the cup, you're preaching the gospel. So you better preach. You better preach. You better shove that bread in your mouth. Chug some Cabernet and tell the devil, ha, I won. <laughs> and you will in just a moment. Oh, it's good. As far as you know, it's grape juice. I'm just kidding. But before we start preaching, there is one additional aspect of preparation that we need to be aware of that Paul speaks to here in the concluding verses of this chapter. Before you start preaching to the devil, Paul says, you need to first examine yourself. Examine yourself. Look at this final verse as the worship team comes and we prepare to take communion, but he says this. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Examine yourself. So Paul tells us that this failure to examine could lead to us taking communion in what he calls an unworthy manner. He will go on to say in the following verses that because of this practice in Corinth, the people were literally eating and drinking judgment upon themselves and some rather peculiar things were happening in their midst. So, so, so what does Paul mean here by an unworthy manner? What does it mean to examine yourself? Well, well, let me tell you first what it doesn't mean, lest anybody in the room today feel as though you're disqualified from taking the bread and drinking of the cup. When Paul tells us to examine ourselves, he is not giving you permission to exclude yourself. He's not saying, look inwardly, and if you recognize that there is sin, to walk away from the table and try to clean yourself up and live a better life so that you can later come back to this table when you feel that you are worthy enough and then partake of the body and the blood of Jesus. That's not what he's saying. In fact, this is where a lot of denominations and namely the Catholic Church, not to throw stones here, but they've gotten this one wrong. To suggest that by any effort of our own, we can clean ourselves up, make ourselves worthy, make ourselves holy, is a direct contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ and a denial of what this meal represents in the first place. No, none of us are righteous. No, not one. Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. But God has shown us a way to be made righteous that is not found in keeping all the rules, making sure that we're doing everything correctly. No, we are made righteous by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are, 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We have been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, lest anyone can boast. No, this is a gift from God. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that saves us. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that qualifies us to come to this table. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that washes your sin as white as snow. Even on your best day, our righteousness is like filthy rags in comparison to His holiness. So, so this examination is not a matter of making ourselves feel unworthy and walking away. No, this, this unworthiness is something different. In, in the original language, when Paul says they take it in an unworthy manner, a better English word for that translation would be this. They've taken it in an irreverent manner. Meaning that they failed to recognize the weight and the significance of what it represents. They failed to realize how much they needed it personally. So he says, you need to examine yourself to ensure that you don't take it in an unworthy manner. If you're wondering, that's why we don't take communion here every single Sunday at the Father's house. I've been asked by a number of people, why don't you guys do communion more often? For this reason, I know that on any given Sunday morning, we've got a mixed company in the room. There are people that know the word and been following Jesus for a long time. You understand the weight of this meal and you will come to the, to the table of the Lord with the right heart. Others who come from very religious backgrounds that have just taken this at a routine, a ritual, but don't understand the significance. And still many others in our community that have no framework for it, that are just trying to figure out who is Jesus and what does my life look like? And I never wanna put pressure on somebody to take the body and the blood of Jesus in an unworthy manner. So we reserve it for our pursuit gatherings where there's predominantly believers and we have time to teach on it. However, we have the luxury today of being afforded this chapter in our series so we can do what Paul asks us to do. We can take a moment and we can examine ourselves. We can look inwardly. We can ask the right questions. We can recognize how desperately we still need, no matter how long we've been serving Jesus, the broken body and the shed blood. And so we're gonna do that in just a moment. It's gonna get slightly awkward because it'll, it'll be quiet, but I'm gonna ask you to have a reflective moment in your seat to examine yourself before we come to the table. And to help you do that, as is my custom, I offer a question to aid you in the process. And here's how I wanna pose it. As we sit and we think, I want you to ask yourself, why do I need to remember? Where has life caused me to forget? Where have I held my own sin against myself that Jesus is not holding against me? Where have I doubted where have I forgotten? Why do I need to remember? And so before we take communion, I invite you right now, just close your eyes, take a moment, and let's examine ourselves. Let's recognize our need for Jesus. And as we do that, to eliminate some of the awkwardness, G's gonna begin to sing this hymn over us, but you don't have to sing along, just, just listen, have a conversation with God for a couple Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.